Well, I'm going to start with a little story this morning. And um, when I'm done, you can tell me if this was a true story or if I made it up. So how about that? A little game to kind of get us going. The story involves a wedding, a wedding with just over 200 people, 225 people to be exact. It also involves a couple, Jenny and Josiah, distant friends of the bride who were sent an invitation. After a gorgeous ceremony in a beautiful cathedral, everyone heads to a local banquet hall for the extravagant reception. Upon arriving, you are presented with a dressed-up table with everyone's name on a gold card. Next to each name on the card was your respective number to the table with your assigned seating. There were, equal to the number of guests, 225 cards written in fancy calligraphy. Jenny and Josiah located their names and after some discerning, reading that fancy calligraphy, determined they were in seats 24 and 25. This surprised Jenny because she really had not had much of a relationship with the bride in recent years, and yet she found herself sitting next to, immediately family, next, next to immediate family and friends. They introduced themselves, though, shared their relationship with the bride and groom, and conversed freely about for about 30 minutes. After being comfortably uh, seated, settled into their seats for that 30 minutes, though, and shortly before the reception festivities were set to begin, the woman overseeing the entire wedding approached them. She came over with another couple, the actual best friends of the bride and groom, and asked to see their name cards. That's when she informed the couples that they were actually not in seats 24 and 25, but in seats 224 and 25, the last seats in the room. Humbly, the couple made the way to the back of the room and their seats and then kept right on going out the door to home. <laughs> so that would be humiliating, wouldn't it? And so there's the story of the wedding guests. And I'm curious, how many think that is a true story? How many think I made that story up to illustrate the message? How many don't want to take a stand? <laughs> well, here's the, here's the thing. It is a true story, uh, and I did kind of make it up. You know, it's a true story because it's a story that Jesus told. It's a parable, so it's a story, but it's also the truth because, of course, it's the words of Jesus. It's actually found in the scriptures, and maybe you recognize that story. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke 14, verses 7 through 11, or you can look it up on your phone, or you can look at the screens here, or on your handouts, uh, all kinds of ways to access the scriptures today. But here we are, the parable of the wedding guests in Luke 14, 7, and this is the story that Jesus tells, and uh, it's a pretty, that's uh, eh, similar to what I just told you, it's Kind of the same story I just told you. <clears throat> and my throat really wants to clog up this morning. <clears throat> so, here we go. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited to go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is week four of our series, Paradoxology. And we're taking two words, paradox, the paradoxes of Scripture, and, uh, and then we're kind of fleshing them out in our everyday life of our personal doxology, our personal everyday worship, a lifestyle of worship. And uh, we're navigating the tension of these paradoxes in our 
worship. And, uh, you know, just like last week, last week was really kind of a tension sort of uh, paradox there as we looked at this, this, this call to, to love God and to love others and then we also saw this context that we're supposed to actually, uh, well, well, here was our big idea last week that really nailed it, right? Really, I can't love others best if I don't love God most and sometimes as I'm loving God most, other people might look at me and think, well, you don't love me. You hate me, right? And we find that all the time today in society when we don't agree with everybody's lifestyle maybe. And, uh, but we, we, we love God most and we want to tell them the truth. And, and uh, so that was the reality of last week's message dealing with some of those, those, those tough issues and how we flesh that out in our life. As Jesus said to be his disciple, you had to, you know, you had to hate your mother and father and brothers and sisters and you know, your children and your spouse and don't really have to hate them, right? That's not the point. But the point is we love God so much that people interpret it that way. And I, I'll be honest, I went home last week with a bit of anxiety thinking, boy, I hope everybody heard my words okay and understood my words. And as I put the message up on YouTube and put my PowerPoint with it uh, last Sunday afternoon, I heard myself again and I'm like, okay, I was, I was pretty clear there. But, but it was a, these things do have a lot of tension to them. And uh, that's the reality of this series. Today's paradox is a paradox that is repeated throughout the scriptures. You find it all throughout the scriptures. From the wisdom books to the parables of Jesus to Peter and Paul and James and John. And they all talk about this challenging paradox found again in verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted and those are the two sides of this paradox this morning we'll primarily zero in on this issue of humility and how humility exalts us and the reward of humility but that's the reality that today's paradox the exalted will be humbled the humbled will be exalted and there's a verse for each one here to start off with proverbs 16 18 pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall and uh, yeah, that's not just karma, that's a biblical truth, right? And we see that all the time in life. How about this one? The humble will be exalted then. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. And so there is just something about this reward attached to humility. And that's what we want to talk about today, this reward that is seen in the spiritual riches there, right? The spiritual riches of, of, of knowing what's important in life, of, of valuing healthier relationships with others, with a, with a deeper intimacy with God, with a purpose in your life. All of this is wrapped up in the spiritual riches. And then there's the honor that comes from a life of integrity, right? And then the abundant life promised by Jesus all of that is undergirded by humility and it exalts us and it gives us these rewards in life here's today's big idea oh excuse me the life of humility is rewarded with spiritual riches honor and abundant life so if you're filling in your blanks sorry I miss those sometimes but here's today's big idea oh before I get to the big idea I didn't put it on the screen yet here but here's what I want to say is that um there is a true versus a false humility that is only experienced in Christ. Um, I, w- I want you to think about it. And you can see this in the context of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Like the fruits of the Spirit don't identify humility, but it does, uh, they do identify meekness. 
Um, a lot of translations use the word gentleness here, but, but look at it. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faith, uh, meekness. Many translations say gentleness uh, and self-control. Against such there is no law. But that really is literally, me- that's the idea of meekness. It's this, it's this power, this strength that's under control. And, and the reality is that this humility, this meekness is actually a fruit of the Spirit, which means anybody can go out and live a life of humility right? But to have true humility that is a fruit of the Spirit, you need the Holy Spirit. You need to humble yourself before a holy God, acknowledge your sin, and you need to be saved and redeemed and, and to become a new creation in Christ. And uh, the point is that, uh, yeah, if you don't humble yourself before God, all of your humility is going to ultimately be self-serving. You can only live your life for you. You can only live your life to glorify you. And so all of your humility is, in a sense, kind of a false humility here's today's big idea true humility is christ shining through me so just we'll see that throughout the message true humility is simply christ shining through me it's another picture we talked about in the last few weeks of just just living out the gospel and working out my salvation every day and uh and 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 i have this humility in me through the fruit of the spirit and it just is lived out and uh shines through me through christ But think about this, even this idea of this false and true humility, even the world, even an unbelieving world can wrap their heads around this. David Brooks, he's a... uh uh, he's a, co- a journalist, cop- not a journalist, he's a, a columnist, he writes. Uh, and he wrote this, truly humbled to be the author of this article in The Atlantic. And David Brooks may or may not be a believer. He writes a lot of faith-based kind of pieces. So maybe he is saved, I don't know. But listen to what he writes here. He, he points to a tweet from the president of the European Central Bank. I was humbled to be awarded an honorary degree by the London School of Economics earlier this week. Thank you so much for this prestigious honor. Brooks notes that the three rules of this fake humility, right? Number one, never tweet about any event that could actually lead to humility. Never tweet, I'm humbled that I went to a party and nobody recognized or noticed me. Never tweet, I'm humbled that I got fired for incompetence. Number two, he says, use the word humbled when the word proud would be more accurate. For example, truly humbled to be the keynote speaker at TEDx East Hampton. The key to humility is, is to display is to use self-evasement as a tool to maximize your self-promotion. And then number three, never use a pronoun. Start your tweets with humbled to be or honored to be. This sends the message that you have only a few seconds to dash off this tweet because you are so busy and important. Finally, we used to dance around our humble bragging, but now Brooks says our so-called humility is explicit, assertive, direct, and unafraid. We blaze forth so much humility that it's practically building. Humility, practically blinding. Humility is the new pride. I thought that was a really cute article, humorous, but there's some truth to that, and there is this reality. There is a difference between true humility that is the work of the Holy Spirit in my life and this false humility where my life ultimately is just promoting me and not really promoting God. So true humility then is Christ shining through me, and the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. And this verse kind of speaks to this issue, right? That there is a true humility rooted in the Lord. Because look what he does here in this verse. The reward for humility is linked with what? The fear of the Lord. The reward for humility and the fear of the Lord. 
So it's not just humility, but it's a humility that's rooted in the fear of the Lord that leads to riches and honor and life. <laughs> True humility is Christ shining through me. Here's today, we're going to look at this, the, the rewards for living out a life of humility. And there's actually three simple lessons today about a humble life and the reward of that humble life. And we'll jump right in here. First, true humility is exceedingly important. True humility in the scripture is exceedingly important. And, and let me just tell you where this message started for me as I prepped this week because I don't have like one central passage per se or one story that we're packing, unpacking. But what I did was I compiled a list of all the verses in the, in the scriptures about humility. And, and, and all of those verses, kind of, a lot of them, kind of speak to pride. It's like those are dealt with kind of often in the same passage. But I compiled this great list of all these verses on humility. And today, you know, anyone today, you can get Bible software that does this. Excuse me, you can go on to Google and just type in, you know, verses on humility, verses on patience, verses on whatever. You'll find long lists of all these verses. And I just compiled, as I started this week, a long list of all the verses on humility. And what was striking to me was how you could just see the, the sheer number of verses on humility. In fact, this paradox that we mentioned today, you find it in various parts of the scripture. I mean, repeated pretty much verbatim. And the reality is, is simply this, is that humility is a major theme throughout the Bible. Humility is a major theme all throughout the Bible. In fact, we read that story at the outset about the wedding guest, right? And, and that's in Luke 14. You know, in Luke 18, Jesus tells another parable about a tax collector and a Pharisee. And the tax collector is praying all humbly you know and the pharisees praying like lord i'm glad i'm not like that lowly tax collector over there because you know i'm righteous and i'm holy and i'm and do you know how he ends that parable he ends that parable with this exact same thing oh, i didn't put it on the i didn't put it on the screen here's what it says in luke 18 14 for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted tells a different parable comes to the exact same conclusion just four chapters later. And you'll see that throughout the Bible. You'll see this, this thought continually reinforced that God opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. So, uh, yeah. You know, when you think about this idea of paradox being so important, think about it just in, just in your just a quick look throughout scripture like where do we see it in scripture like it tells us that to enter the kingdom of god you have to have what the humble faith of a little child how about to be a pastor or leader in a church right you have to be a humble servant of all how about uh, the wife with an unbelieving husband what does she need she needs a gentle uh, spirit of humility to win over this unbelieving husband for the church to be a light in a dark world we need to be seen as a people of a deep humility trusting in god and as previously stated salvation is when good news humbles us before a holy god you can't be saved without humility do you see how important it is from the first page of scripture to the last page of scripture in fact we could say adam and eve messed up right when they lost that sense of humility before a holy god and disobeyed him let me give you one example, though, real briefly here. One example of this in Scripture. It's Israel's experience in the wilderness. And here's the, the setting. I'll read a couple of verses in Deuteronomy 8 in a minute here. But 
Israel, if you remember their story, they, they're led out of the great exodus you know, through the Red Sea and they're heading to the promised land. And they get there and they don't have enough faith to go in and claim God's promise. So what God does is God punishes them and he sends them into the wilderness for 40 years. And they wander around in the wilderness 40 years and I found this passage interesting this week as we see why he had them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Listen to what it says. And you shall remember... This is what he's saying. Now, understand, right now, they're, they're, they're at the end of the 40 years and they're getting ready to go back into the promised land and finally claim it. And here is what, here's what the, God says to them. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And I just thought of four simple words in that little passage there that kind of speak to this whole humility. Because see, that's why they went through the wilderness. God had to humble them. It was their job to introduce God to the world, right? They were his chosen people and he chose them. He said, I want you to introduce me to the world. And so he had to humble them so they could take on that mission. And there was like dependence in here, like like they had to depend upon him. They couldn't go out and grow their own food out there in the wilderness, could they? So God fed them with manna. You know, manna, it means what is it? Like, what is it? It was a honey kind of wafer stuff that just popped up on the ground overnight. And they learned to depend upon him. And it's so awesome because it says their clothes didn't wear out for 40 years. Another passage tells us their sandals didn't wear out for 40 years. Can you imagine having the same pair of shoes for 40 years? They depended on God. And then there's sustenance because he even makes the point that this, this, this stuff that grew up on the ground, that this what is it, this honey wafer stuff, actually represented more than physical food, but spiritual food. That he was the bread of life. That, that they needed him to sustain them, not just physically, but spiritually. And think about all you would go through, all the emotions you would go through, and all the anxieties you would go through out there in the wilderness. And yeah. They needed him for their dependence and their sustenance and then their interdependence. Because it's really amazing that if you think about it, go back and, uh, and uh, Jacob and his 12 sons go into Egypt, right? And then 250 years later, who comes out of Egypt? A million people strong, this whole nation that is, that is, that is supposed to, 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 to proclaim to the world the greatness of Yahweh. And so, but they had this interdependence because they had each other and he was teaching them that you need each other. You don't just need me, but you need me working through each other. We need our church families all over the place. Whatever church you're a part of, you need your church family. We need each other to grow strong. And then finally, how about the word evidence? That they were to be his evidence. And it's a, it's a really interesting, fascinating story most don't know, but you know when they finally go into the promised land, the, the, the spies go in there, and they stay, remember they stay with Rahab? And she hides them overnight. And, she, and they, they, she tells them something. She said, you know, 40 years earlier, you were knocking on our door, at our, at our doorstep, and we were, afraid, we were afraid, we were freaked out that you were going to come in because we had heard about the great exodus and we had heard about how your God had parted the Red Sea. And we're like, he's going to part us. And it's like, oh no. And you get it, the irony. 
the paradox. They were so afraid they wouldn't go in and claim what was theirs and the people inside were sitting there shaking in their boots. In fact, I thought this week, I didn't have time to research it. I wonder if there were walls 40 years earlier around Jericho. I don't know if there were or not. I know there were 40 years later. Like, they put walls up because they might come after us someday. I don't know if that's the case. But it's an, it's an amazing, an amazing, an amazing story. And the point is, they were to be the evidence for all the people of the world. The bottom line here, just understand the simple truth here about how humility was so important for the Jewish people to be the nation they were. It was important. It was, he had to build humility into them. And one last thing before I go to point to lesson two today. I just thought about this context in my own story. How about you and your story, right? Are you just tired? Are you just exhausted from walking the wilderness of this world? Are you just not like ready? Lord, please come back. And, and it's hard to pray that because you know there's so many unsaved loved ones around you, you know. But it's like, Lord, I'm just ready to go home. I am just ready to leave this planet. I'm ready to get out of here. And it makes me stop and realize that as I wander through the wilderness, God is just building humility in me and just preparing me for all of eternity with him. And somehow what I'm going through today will have an eternal impact even tomorrow. So again, true humility is Christ shining through me and he's developing this humility in me and he's, he's, he, that humility is him, he's just developing it, helping people see it in me. So, so not only is true humility exceedingly important though, it is also exceptionally powerful. True humility is exceptionally powerful and, and, uh, and that actually in, it, in itself leads to another side of this paradox today, right? Think about that. How often do we equate humility with power? Or think about its counterpart, like humility and meekness. Meekness and humility are kind of linked together. And you could say it this way, really. Um, Here's how it is. In, In the world's economy, humility and meekness can be signs of timidity and weakness. We don't very often look at the meek person and think, wow, he's really strong. Or the humble person and think, wow, he is so powerful. It's like... No, we kind of have a different view of them, right? It's like weakness and timidity, and yet the scriptures say it's exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. And the two most meek people in the Bible, you know who they were, right? Moses, and then the other person identified in the Bible as being meek is Jesus, and Jesus' entire life is marked by humility. And the best place to really get a good picture and understand the paradox of humility is to go to the gospel. Because the gospel powerfully embodies true humility in ways that are just so, uh, so incredibly powerful. To look at the gospel, let's just, let's, we're just going to walk through Philippians 2 a moment, just a few verses here, and uh, we're just going to see the paradox of humility work itself out. But here it is again, 1 Peter 5.5, 5, the, from the pen of Peter, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And as I said, James says this, it's found in the Old, they're quoting the Old Testament here. It's all over the scriptures, this paradox. But let's look at it, let's flesh it out here a moment in the scripture, in the book of Philippians. Here's the first thing to know about this, uh, the, the power of humility in this paradox. First, pride came before the fall. So start there. We know that, right? We understand that's what the, 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 the scripture says. Like, you know, pride comes before a fall. And we know that is true, right? Now, now where did the fall originate? Do you, do you know, there's a question for you to, to consider, really. When did the fall originate? 
If I asked you that question, most people would say, well, back in the garden with Adam and Eve, right? That's when the fall, it all began, right? And I would contend that actually no. To really understand the fall, you've got to go back even farther. You've got to go back before the creation of man to the creation of the angels. And God created all those angels. And his most beautiful creation was who? Was Lucifer. Lucifer made music when he walked. Lucifer was the pinnacle of God's creation. He was so glorious and so beautiful. And I don't know when this happened, how this happened. I I would suppose, um, me and Harold were talking one time that this probably transpired. He said it probably transpired over a long period of time. But at some point, Lucifer decided that he was worthy to sit on on heaven's most holy throne. And so Lucifer wanted to sit on heaven's most holy throne. And what did God do at that point? God booted him out of heaven and booted him to earth. And pride goes before a fall. That goes back all the way to Satan. And then we see it played out in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve because because Satan is so angry at God, he's going to get back at God. How? He's going to get back at God by attacking his creation. And he causes us to fall. And so that's really, really, really amazing. Here it is in Philippians 2. Look at this though. So listen to what Paul writes in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And you realize the selfish ambition and conceit and the pride wrapped up in that verse, it was never intended for us. It's a part of us because of the fall. Because our pride, we fell and sin has taken us over and we're under the curse of sin. And so now we struggle with these things. We struggle with these realities. Pride goes before a fall and now we have fallen into selfish ambition and conceit and all of the ugliness that goes along with that in the world. Now here's the question we come to next then is how did God answer the fall? How did God deal with the fall? How did God deal with our sin? How did he redeem us out of the wilderness of this world? How did he rescue us from our deceit, conceit, selfish ambition, and pride? And this is a really amazing answer. Look at this. Jesus answered our pride with his humility. That's a paradox. Like how did he answer our pride? How did he deal with our pride problem? With his own humility. The high and holy one humbled himself. Look back in Philippians 2, verses 5, continuing on. It says, have this mind among yourselves. Like, how do we combat our selfish ambition, pride, and conceit? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, e- did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so note that the cross is marked by the humility of Jesus and that's how he dealt with our pride, with his own humility, by by coming down to earth and humbly serving us. The thing is, Jesus' entire existence is marked by humility. Think about it. He's born in humility. That's the Christmas story, right? He walks this earth in humility. At one point he said he had no place to lay his head. The king of kings had no place to lay his head as he was here serving. And then finally he died in humility. He was actually humiliated on the cross, stripped naked, mocked, and then crucified. His entire existence, birth, life, death, all marked by great humility. And it was the answer to our pride. 
The truth is the power of the cross is undergirded by the humility of Jesus. Without Jesus' humility, he would have never come to earth or died on the cross. And yet we keep going here, because watch this then. At the same time, the gospel humbles me. The gospel humbles Now get this, the gospel does not require humility. Because that turns humility into, a, like, i got to be humble before I can get saved. That returns, that, that takes humility, it makes it a, a work and a requirement of the cross, and there's no work, it's all a free gift. It's just that when I come to the gospel, when I respond to the gospel, it's like this mirror, I look and I see myself for who I really am apart from Christ, lost and lonely and dead and despicable and filled with sin, and I am humbled. I, I'm just melted in humility before God. You could say it this way, to respond to the gospel is to be humbled by the gospel. And I get this clear reflection of who I am. And, and the reality is, think about it, if you're not humbled by the gospel, you'll be humiliated by sin. I put that on here. If I don't humble myself before God, I will be humiliated by my sin. In fact, you could say that humiliated is the negative side of humility, right? Like we can be we can be full of humility or we can be brought down in our pride and humiliated like Satan was. But now think about, I want you to think about something here. We just said a moment ago that, that Jesus answered our pride with his humility and I want you to know that's true for you and me, right? Humility is always the answer to pride. In your relationships, wherever pride is an issue, in your, wherever selfish ambition and conceit and all that stuff, the answer is always humility. It's the answer to our pride. It will diffuse the pride in our life and oftentimes in the lives of others. What does he say again? Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind or have this attitude or think like Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And we talked the last couple of weeks about being a brand ambassador for the Lord, right? And, and in a sense, a brand ambassador, I mean, one of Jesus' brands is humility. We talked last week about it being love. It's tr certainly true. But another part of his brand is that Jesus is just full of humility. In fact, here's the thing. As he approaches the cross, his humility had a powerful impact on those around him. Like there is a Pilate there and Pilate is just astounded because Jesus won't defend himself and Jesus won't push back and Jesus is like, you know, whatever you say. And, and, and Pilate is so astounded by the humility of Jesus. First Peter says it this way, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And, 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 and this was Pilate just so stunned that Jesus didn't defend himself, didn't push back, and Jesus just took the judgment that was put upon him. And Pilate came out and said, I find this guy totally innocent. He won't defend himself, but he's innocent. He didn't do anything. And understand that humility here derives itself from a position of trust. The reward of humility comes from trusting in God. 
Yet it's not, just, it's not just Pilate, right? Because at the cross, when Jesus is crucified and hanging there, the Roman centurion, what does he do? He looks up and he says, clearly this man must be the son of God. Like he was so taken back by what he witnessed as Jesus hung on the cross, his humility, he said, certainly this is the son of God. And what's fascinating about that is that he's a Roman, he's not a Jew, but all the Jews, when they heard that phrase, the son of God, they knew that referred to their Messiah. And so prophetically, this Roman soldier is announcing to everyone around there, all those Jews around there, you have just killed your Messiah. Most certainly, this was the Messiah. And that's what they would hear, and that's what they would, of course, push back on. Wow. Finally, finish up Philippians 2 here, and we'll go to the last lesson. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. Just wow, just wow, just wow. And there is our paradox, right? Just as Satan exalted himself and was then humiliated, Jesus humbled himself and was then exalted. And never forget that formula holds true for you and me today. And true humility will uh, always be the answer to our pride. True humility is Christ shining through me. We see Christ shining out of the cross, representing the Father, and He shines through us in the same way. So one last lesson this morning. Uh, True humility, it's exceedingly important, it is exceptionally powerful, and it is also exquisitely beautiful. It is exquisitely beautiful, and let me give you a, a picture here to understand this, right, if I can. This is a picture on your screen there of the Grand Canyon. And I think it's kind of a picture of the outworking of the power of humility and the beauty of humility. Here's what I mean by that. Maybe you have seen a storm at some point, a a powerful snowstorm or maybe some tornado or hurricane or flood or something. And, And there's this powerful, destructive, violent form. And yet in the aftermath, it leaves behind something beautiful. Or maybe it's just the sheer beauty of God's power. It's like it's a really disastrous thing, but it's so beautiful because it just shows God's power. Kind of like the Grand Canyon. Understand the Grand Canyon most likely is a result of what? Noah's flood. Where, where this great violent storm comes and, and beats on the earth and totally floods out the earth and the aftermath of that incredible power is seen in the beauty of the Grand Canyon which is kind of its own paradox, right? It's right there. Think about that, right? Like God is pouring out his wrath on sin and look what's left in his wake, something beautiful. Something beautiful comes out of God's wrath. That's kind of the picture of the cross, right? Like on, on the cross, God poured out his wrath on sin at the same time he poured out his love on you and me. It's just so radically, um, what a paradox, uh, even in that sense. And so here's the Grand Canyon that's left behind And uh, that's the reality. Like, humility is so incredibly powerful. We see it on the cross, and we see the destruction and the violence and the ugliness of the cross, and yet it leaves something beautiful behind. We'll give you a few examples as we close here in a moment. Let me give you another example of this that I think is also powerful. Uh, Imagine this, right? Imagine that you want to paint a beautiful picture of your life. 
And so you've got all your, 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 your paint colors there. And let's say you have a ton of paint colors there. Like, you know, you go to Home Depot to, to paint your walls and they've got all those nuances and shades of all the different colors, right? So you're, you're gonna paint, you've got a hundred different colors to paint this beautiful picture of your life. Well, let's just say that each of those pictures or each of those, those little paint things are, are not paints, but they're realities, they're emotions, they're moods, they're stuff like that. And so you've got like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and you're painting your story and you've got grief and sorrow and despair and hate and and that's being painted into yours. Even evil because Satan's always working evil into our story and so part of your story, you've got some brush strokes with evil painted in there and God can work something beautiful even out of evil. You have all of that. And just imagine if one of those brushes and one of those little bowls of paint was the color of humility and you're painting your story with the color of humility and humility has this, it adds weight and depth and beauty and character to your beautiful painting and what, what, what humility does is humility draws out the beauty and it kind of blends things together and shows you the beauty in your pain and your hurt and your sorrow in your despair. Like, There's just something beautiful that emerges and humility is such a powerful uh, part of bringing this beauty into and out of our lives. Let me give you a couple of passages here and I'll walk through just five real briefly personal, uh, simple applications of what this beauty looks like in our life. And, And just think about this phrase here, the incredible love of the Father lived out in the humility of the Son. That's kind of this picture of this beauty, right? The incredible love of the Father is lived out in the humility of the Son, even in the the harshness of the cross and all that's going on there, the brutality and the ugliness of the cross, there is something beautiful that emerges. Look at this passage, 1 Peter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to you, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. What a simple passage here, kind of a paradox in its own sense, right? Because it kind of says this to us, humility will repay a cursing for a blessing. Humility will repay a cursing for a blessing. And someone may curse you and you will turn around and pay them back with a blessing. And that is just so unnatural, Yeah, it's spiritual. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's beautiful when that happens. It's a beautiful part of your life story when you can repay a cursing for a blessing. I was listening listening to Jeff Mannion. He's over at Ada Bible Church and he had a great message on this and he he did a a beautiful job of giving two definitions for cursing and blessing. I want to share them with you and then he ties them together. But here's what he says. He says a blessing is when you seek someone's well-being. When you desire, when you pray for someone's well-being, that is seeking a blessing. And just one example here, Psalms 115. Here's uh, the passage, I don't know who wrote Psalms 115. But may the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's praying for someone's blessing, right? Now, on the contrary, what's a cursing? Well, a cursing is when you are seeking someone's undoing. And we have an example here of David. David's going to give us a, a power, I'll read a few verses from David who is praying for someone's cursing and their undoing. And it's like, David, didn't you get the memo? Didn't you read the New Testament? Well, no, he didn't. But, but honestly, in, in David's favor, 
he, he illustrates this because he, 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 he showed favor to King Saul even while King Saul was trying to kill him. So he did live this principle out. But watch this because here in this instance he's praying for someone's undoing. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his grandchildren wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. There is someone who is seeking someone's undoing. And so here's how Jeff Mannion tied these up. It was so powerful to understand what it means really when we talk about this blessing and cursing kind of paradox. And it's simply this. To seek the well-being of the one who is seeking my undoing. Yeah, that's... That's pretty heavy. That's a paradox, right? To go out and seek the well-being of the one who is seeking, the person who is praying, may his children be fatherless and may he lose his job and may he go bankrupt and may he get boils all over his body and we're praying, Lord, bless him. Like the first passage. May his days be many and may he come to know you and may, and we pray a blessing on the one who is actually seeking my undoing. That's so incredibly that's the beauty of humility. Humility allows me to seek the well-being of the one who is seeking my undoing. Pride won't let me do that, but humility will let me. That's, and, and think about this. You, you want a picture of this? Let's think about it. Who put Jesus on the cross? Right? Well, we know we all put him on the cross. And we all nailed the nail. But, but who, in real time, Jesus always butted heads with who? The religious establishment. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and they were the ones, actually, that they're the ones that arrested him and put together the kangaroo court and falsely accused him and then pronounced judgment on him and then drove the nails in his hands. And they were actively afraid of Jesus. They were seeking his undoing. So much so that when he rose from the grave, what did they do? They said, we need a lie. They, the disciples stole his body. And then actually in the book of Acts, they're like beating his followers, telling them to shut up and stop talking about Jesus. They were seeking his undoing. And let me just tell you that when Christ is hanging on the cross, who's he dying for? You and me, of course. But those Pharisees and those Sadducees that were seeking his undoing, he was seeking their well-being. That is just amazing. That is the humility of Christ. That's the humility that can shine out of me. Paul said it this way, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Wow. Hmm. Pretty amazing. Pretty, pretty amazing. Go on, verse 9 again. This is a different translation, New American Standard Bible here, because it just uses one slightly different word. Not returning, he says, read it again, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, that's the different word, but giving a blessing instead, for you are called for the very purpose that you would inherit a blessing. You know what it's called when you trade insult for insult? What's that called? When you trade insult for insult with your spouse, what's that called? That's called an argument, right? That's called a fight, an argument. And here, here's the reality about humility. Humility will end an argument before it begins. It will end an argument before it even begins. Just think about that, right? And, and think about how this works. So we get in these arguments, we get in these fights, and they always start out with our behavior, right? Like it's in a behavior attack. Like 
the, the wife is like, you did this. Or the husband's like, you did this. And, and one person attacks the other and then we attack back and we're attacking, well, you did this and you did that. And, you, and then what happens often in these arguments? You ever follow this? It takes that dangerous and destructive shift when all of a sudden it goes from a behavior attack to an identity attack. And pretty soon it's, it's not just you did this. It's like, well, you are selfish. Well, you are insensitive. Like, like you know I wanted to watch the game. You're just being selfish. Well, you know that I, you know, I wanted this, and you're just being insensitive. And we, and we shift, and that's a more dangerous place when you start identifying someone and attacking them, and uh, yeah. And the reality is, here's, here's the thing. Think of if, if, if two spouses could both practice this. When one spouse attacks them or gets upset or has an issue and they get hurt, if our immediate response was humility, it would diffuse the argument. Say, I'm sorry. I might even be right. They may not even be accurate, but I just say, okay, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you felt that way. I am so sorry. And next time the other person, when you come at them, they can, you know, it takes both spouses to do this. Because if one spouse is always being walked on and always acting in humility, that can be, that can be an ugly thing too. And so, but humility will end an argument before it begins. See, humility attacks. Like there's behavioral attacks and there's identity attacks and then humility attacks. It's when Christ, the power of Christ is seen in me and I just diffuse the argument before it can even get off of the ground. That can be so incredibly important. Humility will serve those around you. We saw this already in Philippians 2. Like look, don't, don't look to your own interests but also to the interests of others. Have the mind of Christ. Think like Christ. Uh, Christ who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And the point here is that on the cross, Jesus wasn't simply serving. He was serving everyone that was under him. And there's this thing that humility will allow me to serve those that are under me. And it's not that I should ever see someone as under me. That's not the point here. It's just in life there are. There are times that there are people that maybe I have authority over. Or there are people that I have opportunity over. Or there are people that I have more resources than. And I don't look down on them, but I am willing to serve them. To serve those who are under me. It could, be, it could look like, uh, for instance, the boss who sees his job as serving his employees. The pastor elder who is serving his church. The husband or wife that is serving their families. It is the children that is serving their families, right? It's the children. You can serve your brother and sister, Anthony. You can serve your mom and your dad, your grandma and grandpa. You can serve those around you, even if you're a kid. It's the politician serving his constituents, and don't laugh, I'm serious. They should be serving us. That's what they're there for. It's the business owner serving the customer, and the customer serving the business owner. Humility will serve those who are under you. We can, we can be the customer and think, well, the business owner is under me because, you know, no. No one's under anybody, we just serve. And then humility will take off the mask, we'll remove my mask and we'll be real. Let's just be honest, really, right? At least a part of the reason we all wear masks in life is because of our pride. We may be afraid of what people will think if they see the real me and so we put these masks on and we hide who we are and there is just a sense where we need to take off our masks and we just need to be real with people. I still remember 25 years ago uh, at that church, we had started a church over in Wisconsin and met at the strip mall for like six years. I just remember a guy that hadn't been in church for a while came and visited our church and came back to church and started coming and we went to his house one afternoon and he, he said to me, he says, you know, you're not, you don't look like most, you don't look like most pastors. 
And to me, that was one of the most uh, greatest compliments in all of my years of ministry. It's like, yeah. And, and it's just that he saw me as a real person. We all need to be real people and we can still be holy and we can still have lives of integrity and not be a person that comes across as being holier than thou. It's the beauty of humility. And think about this. Think about Jesus. You know, Jesus never wore a mask, but you know what those religious Pharisees and Sadducees always did? They're like, put on a mask. <laughs> Come on, put on a mask for us. It's like, no, I'm fine. I'll just be me. I will just be real and I don't need to wear a mask. And he tells us, really, if you want to think about it, what is the secret to not wearing a mask? Jesus can teach us this. It's number one, knowing who you are, right? Number two, knowing the Father loves you. And number three, just living a life of integrity. If you do those three things, you won't ever need a mask. If you know who you are in Christ, if you're confident who you are in Christ, if you know that God loves you, and if you just live a life of integrity, you'll never need a mask. And finally, one last example, humility will reach out for advice. And that's all throughout the Bible too, really. The Proverbs, all kinds of wisdom Proverbs on this that, you know, we're more successful in life when we are just humble and when we just seek out advice. But pride, like, no, I got it, I'm good. And you can be drowning in a sea and it's like, I'm good, I don't need any help because I'm me. I got my mask and... So no one knows I'm really struggling. And, but humility will reach out for advice. Humility understands, just like with all those Jewish people in the wilderness, the interdependence of needing each other, of being a great family of God, a powerful family of God. We need that in our life every single day. Even on the cross, Jesus wanted Peter, James, and John to come and pray with him even in that sense. What did we learn today then? We learned that true humility is Christ shining through me. It is Christ shining through me. And the reality is true humility is exceedingly important. It is exceptionally powerful and it is exquisitely beautiful. And I hope you understand today that the cross is where all three of those, where the importance, the power, and the beauty of humility all converges. It converges at the cross. It's an amazing, it's an, it's an amazing thing. It was humility that allowed Jesus to walk, uh, to walk up Calvary in, in humility and embrace the cross. It was humility that unleashed the power of God's wrath against sin and the power of his love against you and me personally. And it was the humility that unleashed the power of the cross and resurrection into our lives in the most beautiful ways. The beauty of humility is seen in the broken relationships that are mended, the arguments that are diffused, the hope we find in our despair, the grace we find in our injustice, the strength we find in our weakness, the peace we find in our storm, the comfort we find in our brother's and sisters and the joy we find in our cross humility is what allows us to navigate the messy reality of these paradoxes in scripture for humility is the bedrock of our trust in god and it is the simple expression of our worship amen let's pray father thank you so much Oh, Jesus, thank you for your humility, for your example to us, that we would hearken today. We heard it in Philippians. We heard it from Peter that you set an example for us that we would live lives of humility. There is a power and a beauty in humility that we long for. It's the reward of a humble life is, is just this beauty and this power and how it, it impacts us and those around us. Lord, teach us to walk in humility this week. Make us aware 
of those times when we can drop the mask, drop the pride, drop the attitude, drop whatever, and just stand confidently in who we are in you and know you love us and, and, and give your grace to someone who doesn't deserve it. Give us the ability, Lord, to seek the blessing of the very one who is seeking our undoing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.